Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Peter J. Kreeft. He is professor of philosophy at Boston College, and his many books include Wisdom from the Psalms and Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. His new book is How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. I like that title. Uh, this is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Kreeft. Thank you. Glad to be here. You, you, you say that there are people out there today out to destroy civilization by doing really one thing or really not doing one thing, and that is having children. What do you mean by this? Well, just as a brick building is built of bricks, and you can't build one without bricks, so you can't build a civilization without citizens, and children are the new citizens, and uh, people are not having children much anymore, which means that they don't have faith in the future. In fact, most of them are saying things like, I wouldn't bring a child into this terrible world, and I ask them what they mean by this terrible world, and they never say, well, it's a world without God. They say, oh, it's a world with pollution and racism, etc., and I remind them that uh, if they had any history lessons at all, the world was always worse than it was today. It's about the most comfortable it's ever been. <laughs> so if you're not going to bring children into this world, you're not going to bring them into any world. But, but you, you do believe that fundamentally the, the loss of faith in the future really comes from loss of faith in God? Of course. Of course. We uh, have been trying to create heaven on earth in many different ways in the past, and they've all resulted in horrendous uh, things like communism and fascism and other forms of tyranny. Why don't they just drop the utopian impulse or the, I don't know what, you know, the, the, the accusatory, you know, if we only get rid of those bad people, we'll create heaven on earth, right? That, that's a lot of work. Why don't they just go to church? Or temple, or or why don't why don't they become consistently, routinely, in an organized fashion, religious? Well, that's like asking an alcoholic or a drug addict why he doesn't give up his habit. <laughs> uh, if we don't worship the real God, we worship another one, and the other ones are all enslaving, so we become addicted to them, and it's very hard to kick an addiction. W. C. Fields, he had a very simple cure for insomnia. Get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. This manifests itself in, in not having children. So having children requires some kind of sense of uh, a more or less good future. 
Is that is that the premise here? Yes, uh, a faith and a hope and a love in the future, uh, and in at least the order of reality, uh, if not in God. And some people have that, but it's very hard to have that in the abstract without a concrete God. And the people who are having children are religious people, uh, Muslims and evangelicals and traditional Catholics and Orthodox Jews. And and this idea of well, I don't really belong to any church. I don't really go to to worship in any consistent way. But I'm very spiritual. That's mm-hmm. not that's not going to do it. Well, if people say to me, I'm I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I say, well, the devil says that too. Are you of his party? He's very spiritual. He's a pure spirit. Yeah. And you you say that quote spiritual warfare is real. What are some of the worst forms of spiritual warfare that you can observe right now? The most spectacular form is exorcisms. They happen. If I were an atheist and doubted the supernatural, I'd uh, investigate uh, exorcisms and hang around as much as I could to see whether this sort of thing is real or not. But the most common form of spiritual warfare is the warfare against our worst enemies, which is our own sins, our own pride, our own arrogance. Uh, And if you're totally honest with yourself, you'll observe that battlefield too. You you tell people that, you know, sort of the the civilization is collapsing, and you've got some concrete advice to give that you you do offer in the book in part two. What is uh, what is some of the advice that you have? Well, to summarize it all in two very obvious points, uh, a negative one and a positive one, the negative one is don't worship false gods. Don't worship either the donkey or the elephant, worship the lamb. If you've lost your religion, don't make a religion out of politics uh, or out of consumerism or out of sexuality or out of anything. And the positive one is to become a saint. Uh, the only way we can serve, save the world is starting with ourselves. I find that the way in which politics has just taken over so many people's entire character, personality, uh, sensibility is, is extraordinary. And they don't seem to realize that when everything is political, and this was one of the slogans that I heard in the humanities when I was going through graduate school in the 1980s, everything is political, everything is ideological, nothing is not this way. Uh, I, they know, no one seemed to think how much this impoverishes one's own experience, one's own life. It destroys both religion and politics because it uh, switches the role of Christ and Caesar. It brings Christ down to uh, earth and makes him simply subject to uh, political categories. And Caesar is exalted into heaven uh, and determines whether you're right or wrong or not, even about Christ. So basically, our, our, our sin is... Um, we have no God but Caesar. Is this why one can observe something that I've observed? And that is that people for whom everything is political, they don't, they don't have much joy. They, even when they win, their, their triumphs have a certain bitterness about them, almost as if they feel that the fact of any political difference in the world is somehow unjust. There's, there's something unfair about the fact that they even have to do political battles. 
but they're not even, they're, they don't enjoy it. That, that gives me hope. That fact gives me hope because uh, Thomas Aquinas says we cannot live without joy. And therefore, if we do not have true spiritual joy, we manufacture some false joy for ourselves, something secular, something that corresponds to our passions. Uh, unfortunately, the side that's winning right now will not listen to reason. They have uh, reduced reason to rationalization and ideology. Uh, but they can't ignore their heart, even though they can ignore their head. And you you can't deny that you're unhappy when you're unhappy. And they are unhappy. So I they think it is it, it, it can't last forever. It's self-destructive. How, how long have you been at Boston College? I think since the Jurassic Age. I remember dinosaurs wandering <laughs> through our backyard. I started in 1965. Over the years, I mean, I started college in 1977 at, at UCLA. And, and you know what? It was fun. I mean, it was hard. There, there, there was they. You know, we didn't have great inflation so much that there. Then a lot of people flunked out at, at UCLA, but there was a lot of fun on campus. And over the decades, uh, I retired from Emory last year. I I saw these undergraduates just appearing more and more uh, anxious. Um, I mean, not even the necessarily the political ones, but the fun side. The, the diversionary side, it, it seemed to be getting a little forced, um, uh, a little just fraught uh, here and there. And I, I wonder if you've seen the same thing. I definitely have. Uh, some students in the 60s were radicals, but they were happy radicals rather than angry radicals. And even if they were angry, they were, they were happy angry rather than sad angry. Uh, let me let, you tell, let me tell you a little amazing story. I saw it in the paper a little while ago that there's an organization called the Global Happiness Project. I think it's sponsored by the UN, and they rate the different countries in the world on on happiness. Uh, and I was a little skeptical when I first heard this, but uh, I read on, and I read that uh, uh, last year the five unhappiest countries in the world supposedly are all in Africa. And the five happiest countries in the world are the five Scandinavian countries. And I thought this was a great joke because the two clearest indications of happiness are, first of all, smiles. Even one-year-olds understand that. Or the absence of smiles. Uh, and secondly, suicide or the absence of suicide. And Africa, even though it's the poorest uh, continent in the world, smiles the most. You always see Africans smiling, but not Scandinavians. And the suicide rate in Scandinavia and in Europe in general is much higher than any other continent. And in Africa, it's the, the lowest. So I thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. They identify happiness with the um, number of dollars in your bank account, even though you're so happy that you think it's worthwhile to put a bullet through your head. They're insane. They're simply insane. Well, one thing you do say is, relative to this, that healthy cultures, you use the term healthy cultures, they need Pietas. Why is that? Pietas is something like heroism. It's looking up to something with reverence and respect and gratitude. Uh, ancestors, gods, tradition, uh, even abstract ideas, although that's not as powerful. Uh, so I think we have to concentrate more on, on the psychology, the human psychology of what's going on rather than the object. It's not just that we're, we're believing in God less. That's true or believing in authority less, but we don't have any object for that looking up. Uh, a telling remark. One of the uh, uh, things my students tell me 
when we talk about uh, immortality or life after death or heaven, is that they resent the notion that uh, in heaven, even in heaven, there's a hierarchy. And I say, do you, do you mean that when you get to heaven, you're going to just sit down at a bar stool and uh, and say to God, uh, let's talk about football? Or uh, you're going to treat the Blessed Virgin Mary in the same way that you treat uh, your daughter? Of course not. And they look very confused. The, the, the idea of, of looking up to someone with respect or looking down to someone with the charity to, to help them to come up to your level, that's anathema to them. I was very surprised at that. It's something I don't understand. Why should the presence of someone whom you recognize has a little more authority than you have, or someone who is a little more superior, a little bit superior to you, why should that bother you? I don't know. It causes, it causes joy. Uh, it, it, it stems from envy, but envy is the stupidest of all sins because it's the only sin that has never caused anybody any joy at all, even false joy. No, envy, envy is the word. It, it corrodes people. I think it, I think this is this is evident this is evident even from a thing like the color of our cars. When I was a a kid, cars were bright colored. Now almost every car is gray, and if it's not gray, it's either black or white. Our 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 lives are gray. You you what is quote the unmentionable elephant in the living room of the religious liberty debate? That's your phrase. Well. It's not just religious liberty, it's, it's liberty in general, and the elephant in the living room is obviously sex. That's our obsession. Uh, take, take abortion. Suppose abortion had nothing to do with sex. Suppose storks delivered babies. I don't think there would be much demand for abortion. Uh, if divorce were not an issue between the sexes, uh, nobody would tolerate it because it clearly... Uh, <clears throat> Welsh is on your most serious promise that you make when you get married to the most important person in your life. And it is incredibly harmful to children, more so even than death. Uh, and it inevitably destroys society because there can't be a healthy society without healthy families. And divorce is the suicide of a family. And yet it's assumed and tolerated and even glorified. So sexual autonomy. It's not sexual pleasure. We're not getting much of that anymore. Uh, but uh, just uh, I've got to be my own boss. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I lo looking at young students. I I find uh, their sexual world is it doesn't seem fun either. No, it, even that's not happy. No. You know, you turn to the logic of liberalism, and you actually lay out uh, dozens of flat contradictions in in the way liberals think and and reason. And it's actually a very funny list that you compile. But you you have in there, among others, you may worship any god but God. And another, there is no truth, and that's the truth. Uh, these these contradictions, the, you know, I'm reading those, and I'm thinking, okay, this is incoherent. This this has to be making war against itself. But this contradictory system, it, it's taken over. It's been able to thrive. How, how is this? How, how is this possible? I think Nietzsche is the answer. He realized that uh, reason is simply God without a face. And if you accept the authority of reason, even the law of non-contradiction, you're worshiping something like God, something above you, something that puts constraints upon you. So to be totally free, to be the Superman, to be the new God, 
Uh, you have to be above reason. You have to manufacture your own laws about everything, even thought. So the fact that you contradict yourself uh, doesn't bother you anymore. This is part of your so-called freedom. Why not just shrug? Move on. So we contradict myself. So what? What difference does that make? That's, that's almost a direct quote from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you almost have to envy them the capacity to be inconsistent. And you know, I said that yesterday. Today's different. I, I, you know, Professor Kreeft, I, I want to be this way. Why can't I be like this? No, I don't envy them because they have neither happiness nor, uh, nor beauty. Uh, it takes limits uh, for there to be beauty. The beauty of a cat is that it's not a dog and vice versa. And the beauty of a woman that it's not a man, but vice versa. But uh, they want to erase all limits and all differences. Uh, and that's to erase all joy, all, all vive la différence, all hurrahs. You believe that the reasoning powers of young people have deteriorated in recent years. Why do you think this? Well, I don't think it's the powers that have degenerated. It's the faith in reason. It's the willingness to use reason. It's the willingness to submit to what Nietzsche calls the God without a faith, because that's still something like God. Do they know it? Most of them don't. Most of them don't. No. No. no they don't usually... They don't usually notice that. Uh, a few did. Uh, when they read Nietzsche, they're terrified because they see themselves. You think that pride and egotism, that these are the greatest sins that roam the world today. You, you, you believe that psychology, the therapy professions, are really unable to address pride and egotism. They don't want to. Uh, why, why, why don't they want, I mean, pride can cause a lot of problems in, in people's lives. Why don't, why don't therapists want to, want to help people get over their pride? Well, I think they do want peace and reconciliation and, uh, avoidance of conflict. Uh, but they don't see that the conflict with others usually stems from a conflict with God, uh, and so they're, they're into self-esteem and accepting yourself as you are and uh, avoiding all kinds of inner conflict without bringing God into it. Uh, well, that sounds to me as almost insane. Uh, was that Hitler's problem? Did he lack self-esteem? Should he have had more of it rather than less? I think, uh, I think if they examine prisoners, you know, men in prison, that you often get very high self-esteem rates. And, and you have to think to yourself, you know, Someone who goes out and commits a crime has to, uh, has to think pretty highly of, of his own powers. Uh, I'm going to break the law and I'm going to get away with it. Uh, that, that, takes, that takes a level of ego, I would say. Yeah, I've been told by uh, prison chaplains and people who work with prisoners that uh, maybe three quarters of them uh, have made themselves believe that they are innocent, that they are victims. And the other quarter become very deeply spiritual uh, and deeply religious uh, converts, they they kneel. They realize they've they've goofed. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences business, and ministry. 
as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Now, you don't like the terms liberalism and conservatism. You prefer progressivism and traditionalism. What do you mean by that? Well, progressivism is a concentration on the future and faith in the future, and traditionalism is concentration on the past and history and faith in that. And that's a constant. But the content of the political terms liberalism and conservatism keeps changing. I used to call myself a liberal, and now I call myself a conservative, and I haven't changed my mind on a single issue. <laughs> it, is, it is true. I mean, people are saying right now, what does conservatism mean? What do conservatives believe? And I think, I think there's actually a similar uh, examination going on with liberalism that actually hasn't quite been clearly formulated yet. Maybe we could see this in the, within the Democratic Party with uh, sort of one d- different factions uh, dividing the more establishment Democrats and, let's say, the squad uh, on, on the other side. But progressive and traditionalism are terms that are more stable. And they, they really divide people according to their relationship to time. One honors the past, the other one tries to create the future. Is that, that's the dividing line? Yeah, that's a natural dividing line. And because it's natural, there's something in both sides there. You do need roots in the past, and you need to start there. And you do need to work for the future and love and have hope for the future. That's the, uh, the other half of it. It's like, it's like a plant. You need roots and you need fruits. And you need to connect them by the stem. But we are no longer connecting them. We've broken off the stem. And, and you want to bring back the terms saints and sinners, too, right? Well, I think those terms have never died. <laughs> yes, I want to bring them back. A saint is simply someone who loves God and his fellow man with all his heart. Uh, and a sinner is someone who doesn't. Relative to this attitude toward, toward the past, uh, you say young people grow up without without really any heroes today. Uh, why, why have they lost their heroism, their, 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 their search for heroes? Do they know what they're missing? Oh, yes, they know what they're missing. This is why they love The Lord of the Rings. That's the most popular book of the 20th century, because it's got true heroes in it, ordinary heroes. In fact, most of the people there are, are, are heroes, uh, unlike almost all other modern pieces of fiction. You can't have heroes unless there's a, a, a standard, an objective, uh, uh, something like a natural law that uh, defines heroism. Uh, and that's disappeared. So by definition, there can't be a hero. And at the same reason, for the same reason, there can't be uh, a great villain. Uh, students have told me, I don't believe in evil anymore. Evil is, is Dracula. That's a myth. That's a fiction. That's the devil. There is no devil and there is no God. The mentors who have taught young people, teenagers or kids, to downgrade heroes and upgrade villains, do they realize that they're taking away some of the meaning and value from the universe from these kids? You know, that's a good question, and I honestly don't know the answer to it. Uh, I think some of them do, and some of them some of them are just naive and excited at uh, tearing down things. Uh, I, I think this is a kind of a, 
uh, a male thing too. If you watch little kids play, it's the little girls who set up the dollhouses and the tea parties and the guys who come in and bulldoze them down and, and like to play with machine guns. So, uh, uh, Sometimes the people who talk the loudest about male chauvinism are the biggest male chauvinists. They just love to destroy everything. I find that the it, it's almost better for a youth to grow up with certain heroes and then become disillusioned by those heroes than to grow up without any any feeling for heroism in childhood or in adulthood. Well, certainly, uh, because both the heroism and the debunking uh, assume that moral order of things. Uh, and, and as long as the order is in place, then even though your heroes have feet of clay, you can be one and you can find another one. What was the controversy over your 2009 book between Allah and Jesus? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I got... Two very different reactions from readers. Some of them thought it was much too uh, nice and much too open and, and liberal and dialoguing, uh, and they wanted me to demonize Islam. Uh, and others thought I was um, uh, too uh, harsh on Islam uh, in saying that uh, you know Christianity is right, Islam is wrong about Jesus and about a few other things. So I think the extreme right and the extreme left don't like it not because it's a compromise, but because it loves the piety in Islam and it severely disagrees with the theology. And you don't want any severe agreement or a severe disagreement if you're one of the gray metro ideologists. Do, do, do you bounce from Jesus to Allah sometimes and get a reaction from students? Yes, and the reaction is usually surprise. Uh, students who think they've classified me as somebody on the right because I'll um, have strong rational criticisms uh, are surprised at how open and ecumenical I am. And students who uh, assume that I'm uh, uh, you know, a liberal who doesn't believe in objective truth and likes everything and everybody are scandalized by the fact that I'll uh, argue and disagree. Hmm. But uh, you, you have to love people, and you have to hate things that uh, dehumanize people. You have to love sinners and hate sins. And uh, I don't think there's that much passion of either love or hate in the typically modern student. They certainly, they certainly, don't, they certainly don't hate sins enough, and they certainly don't love sinners enough. They tend to love sins and hate sinners. Your, your final chapter is on judgment, uh, and you begin... Thereby saying, you know, judge, people don't want to judge. Even though they do judge, we can't help judging. They don't like judgment. We're in this therapeutic climate where judgment is is hurtful and and insensitive. But they come off. You, you must come off as very judgmental to them. Do how do they how do they cope with that? Uh, we'll ask them. Uh, I teach mainly upper division courses, so I don't get a cross-section of the population. When I used to teach freshmen more, I, I encountered much more of that typical opposition. But when you get to juniors and seniors, you get to people who usually have have come to some sort of a, a worldview of themselves. Uh, I'll teach a course on someone like Lewis or Tolkien or, or Plato or, or Pascal, uh, and you don't usually get people who hate those thinkers uh, enrolling in that course. So I get a lot of really good students who have who've, who have seen the the emptiness uh, of 
the typically modern mind and are looking for alternatives. One of the things you do is distinguish uh, forms that often are taken as non-judgmental, uh, pity and pacifism, but you say those belong in an adversarial relationship. Why is that? Well, pity is judgmental. Pity looks down on someone who is either suffering uh, some physical ailment or is suffering uh, some addiction or emotionally or is suffering from from sin uh, and wants to raise that person up. Passivism says, let's not fight. Let's not uh, uh, have that much passion. Let's let's de-emphasize uh, things. Let's uh, let's cool down the fire. Uh, I mean by pacifism here more a, a psychological thing than a, a political thing. Whether a given war is just or not is, is prudential and, and, and relative. But a kind of, of general pacifism, I don't want to fight. Fighting is bad. Uh, that's the thing that I think makes them deeply sad. Because we don't have a, a good cause to fight for uh, in some way or other. Uh, well, a big slice of your life is gone. Let's, let's wrap up with a, a return to the opening points you made here. Do you see any signs that the birth rate is going to go up, go back up? As the birth rate doesn't go up, we're going to see some real economic hardship in, in the next you know, 15, 20, 30 years ahead. Do, do, do you think people will react in the right way? Americans will? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Temperamentally, I'm a short-range pessimist, but uh, uh, philosophically, I'm a long-range optimist because God's in control of history, and history is like a roller coaster. There are big ups and big downs, and we're on a down now, and nobody knows how far down we'll go before we have the sense to turn back up again, or even if we will have the sense to turn back up again. Now, Western civilization has not been promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, this is not our home. This is just a nice hotel to live in. <laughs> That's right. The book is How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. Professor Kreeft, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. God bless you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.